Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Lawrence Block, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I have four excellent and very diverse authors for you today. We've got thrillers, suspense, cozy, a little bit of everything, so let's get started. My first guest is Anthony Horowitz, the hugely successful author of The Magpie Murders, as well as the man who was handpicked by the Arthur Conan Doyle estate to continue writing Sherlock Holmes and the Ian Fleming estate to write further James Bond novels. He's prolific in novels and TV, and his latest is A Line to Kill, the third in the Hawthorne and Horowitz series. We spoke from his home in England. It is an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Mr. Anthony Horowitz. Thank you for joining me today. Eric, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you for your interest and for your time. Are you in New York? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, I, how I wish I could be back in LA. How is the life there? Uh, it's lovely. I'm working in the television business. I'm an editor and producer, and uh, I'm on almost entering year two of working from home, and uh, I'm loving it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I've I've done quite a lot of work in TV and even in film in LA. So I sort of uh, I miss my meetings where I'm cold shouldered and sent back into the street without being given any sort of break at all. <laughs> My experience is that at the end of every meeting, you feel like it went well and everything is going to go straight to production and they glad hand you and they give you a handshake and they send you off and then they never call again. Sometime in my sort of, I think my 30s, my late 30s, I realized that there was no such thing as a meeting in LA where they loved your idea and rang you three days later with a sort of an envelope full of dollars for you to get started on the program. The the fun of the, the LA circus. A Line to Kill is the third in your Hawthorne and Horowitz series featuring former detective Daniel Hawthorne and his partner, celebrated novelist Anthony Horowitz. Now, you've been asked many times how you came about writing a character that we can only assume is is you in a very, very thin disguise. But uh, I'm going to give you my armchair therapist theory on how this came about. Is that okay? Go ahead. So you've written a tremendous amount, and along the way, you've taken on some very large luminaries, including James Bond, Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot. In a way, it seems to make perfect sense that after inhabiting so many of these other people's work, that you would turn inward and not only get back to your own work, but go even deeper inside and end up writing about yourself. Is that sort of, is that close at least? Well, if I can get off the psychiatrist couch just for a moment, I'm not sure it is actually that close. The truth of the matter is, is that I, I never, I'm not a, first of all, I'm not a main character in this book. These books are not an ego trip. They're not about me and my life. I am the narrator. I am the Watson to Hawthorne's Holmes. And the reason I decided to do it was simply to turn the whodunit upside down. In most whodunits, the writer is a cleverest person. Agatha Christie, Conan Doyle, Dorothy L. Sayers, Ellery Queen. They know the murder. They know the clues. They know everything before they even start writing because they've worked it out ahead of the detective. But by making myself the sidekick, by putting myself into the book, I know nothing. Worse than that, if a detective doesn't solve the crime, I don't have a book. 
because um, I'm writing his story. So what it allows me to do is to just turn the whodunit upside down, to have the fun with all the clues, the suspects, the murder, you know, the whole trail thing, but but to do it from a different perspective. And that's why I did it. So take, taking the burden off your shoulders to be that smart. That's right. I mean, you know, I, I st- I'm not the cleverest person in the book, like the author. I am the stupidest person in the book. You know, it, it is very, you know, three books in, I've managed to get myself stabbed twice, and I keep talking and saying the wrong thing, which tips off the killer and changes the entire story. And Hawthorne is always telling me, just shut up. Don't interfere. You don't know anything. And 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 yet somehow I make mistake after mistake. <laughs> well, in A Line to Kill, it would seem that uh, you're maybe poking a little bit of fun at writing festivals and, and gatherings. And you certainly have a good time populating this festival with colorful characters but as we both know, there's no shortage of actual colorful characters if you go to a writing festival, right? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, first of all, I do love writing festivals. They are the joy of my life. And it is you know, one of the great pleasures to get out of my office, to meet other writers. I've made many, many really good friends in festivals all over the world, including Los Angeles, incidentally. And, and also meeting my readers. You know, we, we writers, we sit in a room by ourselves. And it's an interesting paradox. You can be the biggest bestseller in the world or you can be a complete novice, you are in the same situation. You know, you are, mm-hmm. you are behind the desk, you are on your own, you are, you are isolated from the world. As you get you know, more successful, you manage to get a bigger desk. That's about it. So the literary festival is something which I do love. And the Alderney Literary Festival, which is where I went and which inspired this book, was a blast. It was a little bit peculiar because it's you know, on this teeny little island uh, just about nine miles from France, south of England, and, and no one really knows it. But, but uh, when you say poke fun, it is in the warmest possible way. I mean, I, yes. I love seeing that. Well, you're a writer who's been around long enough to confront what I, I think is one of the hardest things as a writer to face, which is writing a character for a long time and then having to choose to end writing about that character. Uh, you know, whether it's your Alex Ryder series or a TV series like Foil's War, when you end something like that, do you have to come to a point where you know you can say goodbye and never look back? Or is it always pretty painful decision? Well, saying goodbye to Fool's War was painful. It was 16 years of my life, 34 two-hour episodes, of which I think I wrote 31. Um, and, and I produced it with my wife, Jill Green, and it really was a labor of love. And to this day, I miss it. I loved writing those scripts. I loved being part of that world and immersing myself. Alex Ryder, I was less successful. I announced after, I think, 12 books, this is it, guys, I've had enough, I'm stopping. This is the last book. Three years later, I found myself writing book number 13, and now I've done number 14, and next year's number 15. I couldn't leave him alone. So it is difficult to say goodbye to characters that you love. Um, and I'm not the sort of person who kills them off. I, I like to sort of to, to stay, you know, not, not to say this is definitely the end, but to give hope that they will continue in some way or other. And I've been moderately successful in stopping. Well, and we certainly hope that there's there's no plans to kill off fictional Anthony Horowitz in the well, future. That would be an act of immolations, of you know, <laughs> complete self-immolation. I, no, no, there's no way I would do that. The truth is, is that I actually am planning about 11 or 12 books. You know, there is an ongoing mystery inside these mysteries, which is right. what is it that happened in the past in a place called Reith in Yorkshire that turned this ordinary young boy into this very difficult and damaged man? What happened to make Daniel Hawthorne so 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 contrary and such, and and that is an exploration that is going to take twelve or thirteen books to 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 solve. So there is a sort of there is an end in sight, but but nobody I think is going to die. At least not so far as I know. Things can always change. <laughs> yes. 
Well, and Hawthorne, like you say, he's he's got that interesting thing where he he's got layers. He's he is a little bit damaged. He is complicated, and that's got to be the most fun kind of character for us to write, isn't it? I mean, the kind of person who has a, maybe a deep dark secret or just something like you say in their past that makes them build up to who they are. And so we need to play a little bit of detective to try to get to the center of that, don't we? As 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 we write these books, it's interesting as a writer. If you're writing a long series like Alex Ryder, with every book you write, you get to know more about your central character uh, and you find more to write about. So 14 Alex Ryder books, I suddenly find myself meeting his godfather. I meet sort of old friends of his parents. I go back into his past over and over again. And the character becomes more fully fleshed the more you write about it. And that's true about the people we meet in life, too. The more we know them, the better we get to sort of understand them and to like them. And it is absolutely true, therefore, but as a human being in this book, meeting another human being called Hawthorne, I am drawn to this mystery in him and to find out what makes him tick. And and, and the more I know him, the more I like him. The word like is important, incidentally, because it is impossible to read, I think, a detective story if you do not like the central character for all their faults. Now, Hawthorne does have faults, but then so does Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is an incredibly difficult character, sort of cold-blooded, aloof, uh, very untidy. He takes cocaine. He's, um, you know, he's, he's, he's maddening in many ways, but it is Watson's friendship with him, his admiration for Holmes, that keeps us reading those books. And that, I think, is what I'm trying to do also in this series, that no matter how difficult Hawthorne makes life for me, I find myself liking him more and more. Yeah. Well, I think your writing is decidedly British, and there's a certain tone, a way about it that I I think your Englishness cuts through. It's hard to describe, but it's definitely there. And I'm always curious, I mean, do you find American crime writers have a, a distinctive voice as well? You, you can pick up a book and not know anything about the author and immediately know, oh, okay, this person is American. Almost certainly. I mean, you know, if you go to the great masters, to Dashiell Hammett or to Raymond Chandler, um, or for that matter, to Ellery Queen, who's always been, or S.S. Van Dyne, who is another American writer that I like very, very much. Um, you know, these writers do have an extraordinary flavor. I mean, they're more, funnily enough, I think, towards the gumshoe era, era or, you know, area yeah. of detective fiction, whereas British crime writing, I guess, is slightly more parochial, smaller, more villagey, because that is, of course, how this island is. We are a very, very small country, and therefore crime can be very, very community-based. But, um, uh, you know, the language, the style, the hard-boiled detective image, um, this is very American. My Diamond Brothers books, which are my kids' books, are guying American crime fiction. They are, mm-hmm. you know, they're sort of, you know, the, the joke is here, but the, the narrator is sort of Raymond Chandler, but he's 13 years old. So so you get that sort of hard-boiled, wise-cracking detective, but it's completely ridiculous coming out of the mouth of a child. <laughs> All right. Well, before I let you go, if, as you you say, you're planning another, you know, 11 or 12 books in, in this series. Of course, you've always got a lot of plates that you're spinning. Do you think you'll ever run out of ways to murder people? You know, the funny thing about that is, it's not the running out of ways to murder people that worries me. It's motives for murder. I think the uh-huh. most interesting and most important thing in a murder mystery is the reason why somebody is killed, because that's really what the book is about. People think that murder mysteries are about murder. They're not. They are an ex- the murder is the excuse to explore character and and to discover motive and 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 all those passions that go into into the into that terrible act of killing. So. I'm not going to go the route of Midsummer Murders, a TV show which kills people with croquet mallets or cheap giant cheeses rolling down the hills or bottles of beer or whatever it's going to be. I don't need to worry about methods. It's motive that worries me. And it's always thinking up the next motive that really challenges my mind. Well, there you go. There's, there's a writing class in, uh, in one 30-second answer. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you for the question. It's an interesting one. 
Next up is Kimi Cunningham Grant. Now, I fell in love with her first novel, Fallen Mountains, and her second novel, These Silent Woods, is just out now, and it's also really great. A slow burn story of a man who takes his daughter off to live in the woods away from society, and while they're there, we learn how they ended up there and why. They also encounter threats to their anonymity living out there. Kimi really has a style that, that I love, so I was really excited to talk to her. Kimi, thanks for joining me. Uh, These Silent Woods is your second novel after Fallen Mountains, which I absolutely loved. And These Silent Woods uh, is, was a wonderful follow-up. Really enjoyed it. And and this one, you stick to a more rural setting and you go even a bit further. You go deep into the woods where uh, Cooper and his daughter are trying to sort of live away from society. And we slowly learn why they're there and also what dangers lurk in the woods around them. It made me wonder, are, are you yourself an outdoors woman? Do you, do you like being outdoors? Or what keeps drawing you to these places that are far away from the crowds? Yes. Um, well, thank you so much for the nice things you said about both of my books. Um, you are correct. I am an avid outdoors woman. We, we live here in the woods in Pennsylvania. And so I spend a lot of time there. And just this past summer, we... Um, took our two kids and a camper and drove out and boondocked in national forest a lot. So oh. out west. So um, yeah, so I'm always in the woods. I like to hike and bike and kayak and, and I got into fishing recently too. Oh, what's, what's your biggest catch? Well, I did catch a, um, a brown trout on Silver Creek with a, a fly rod in Idaho. So that was my, that's my best to date. Yeah. That's not easy. I, I, I know that. Yeah. Well, it's probably beginner's luck, but I'll take it. And when you're, when you're out there just, uh, you know, in, in nature, is that where the ideas come? Do you use that also as sort of a, an incubator for, for your story ideas? Yeah, I think I do a good bit. For me, walking in the woods is a, is a good place for me to sort through scenes and think about what a character might say or do and sort of picturing you know, the setting as well. And I try to look at big things, but also small things like what's growing on a log and what's happening in the treetops. And, and so I like to look for all of those things. This is one of those stories that I've, I feel like it, it barely grazes the category of, of suspense and mystery. And yet it's solidly there when you, when you really look at the story, but your style, I really like, cause it's not one of hyperbole and sort of breathless thrills along the way you take your time and you build character but i mean is it safe to assume that your influences sort of as 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 a young reader were not these sort of straight up airport read thrillers yeah i think you're right i'm not i'm not i i am in that category but i often feel like is this the right categorization for me i mean um i do think that i tend to lean more literary in my in my style and um pacing my agent will often um i'm she's editing she just reviewed a manuscript for me last week and she you know i came to a comment and it's like I like what's happening here, but it's a little slow. Can you help this? And so, um, you know, she's always good to keep me on track of like, this was nice character development, but nothing's really happened for eight pages. So let's tighten it up. You know, that's, I think uh -huh. that's my, one of my weaknesses as a writer is uh, keeping things moving along quickly enough. And so she, she usually can help me out with that. Well, I, but the thing is, I, I think especially in t mystery and thriller. I mean, with I've I've read so many nowadays that you do you you start to be able to 
put them in their little baskets like, oh, this is that type and this is that type. But and it really does even the best high intensity thrillers, the best ones come down to character. And I, and I think that's really one of your strengths. And clearly is that that's where the stories develop out of characters. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I do think that that tends to be a little more instinctive for me as a writer to think about characters and just um, to to be developing them more than I, I'm more character focused, I think, than plot driven, just as I think yeah. about writing and work on my on my stuff. Um, so that I think that you're that you're right. During this book, was it ever a challenge for you? the limits you have with this incredibly small cast of characters and, and rather limited locations as well? You know, for me, shifting from writing Fallen Mountains, which was again in the woods in a small town, but um, I had, it was written from multiple points of view. And so in some ways shifting to a very limited one person, you know, point of view, that was really refreshing for me to be able to, to just really get into the voice of Cooper. And I think, you know, I really had to work on making each character likable and, and sometimes hateable um, in their mm-hmm. own in their own way. I think I wanted characters to, I wanted readers to, to be sort of torn about the characters throughout, depending on the moment of the book. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the tricky part is that we're, it, we have to sort of walk that fine line between knowing that we're, we were manipulating readers a little bit yeah. by toying with their loyalties and stuff, yeah. but yeah. I mean, they can't be, a character can't be too perfect or too, too likable, you know, or they feel they don't resonate. So yeah, right. figuring out where, um, where a character can be likable, but also where you're you're rooting for them you know you want to root for your characters but you also don't want them to be too perfect that they're obnoxious <laughs> right now do, do you let that play out in, in your real life like this is your husband ever have the excuse of like look i'm not perfect i'm just like one of your characters um you know he hasn't used that line yet i don't think but if he listens to this he might he might uh loop back to and try to try to use it <laughs> he'll, he'll throw your own work in your face yeah. in the middle of an argument <laughs> Well, this book uh, underwent a, a title change is that right it used to be originally called flight it yes it did used to be called flight <laughs> I, I do my research <laughs> and uh, with with titles, I mean, I, I find titles sometimes it can honestly be the hardest part of writing an entire novel. Is it right? <laughs> Not yes, yes. I have never actually had my title selected for <laughs> the book. The title that I picked it never sticks. So I'm I'm just trying to tell myself, you know what? This is not something I do well. Obviously, so I'm probably <laughs> going to change it. Don't get too attached. I was really attached to flight, but I like the new title too. <laughs> Well, because it has a, that other layer, because you've got Finch and you've got this whole sort of bird motif yeah. in there. So I, I get what you're trying to you, do. You liked it too. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you also teach writing. Yeah. And I, I want to know, have, have you learned anything over the course of writing your own novels that you now can implement in your classes? You know, um, I think one of the best things that I can share with um, developing writers is that I happen to be a writer who I can draft pretty quickly, but I, I revise very heavily. And I think young writers tend to think, well, I sit down and I, I typed up my story or my essay, and now 
it's amazing and I'm going to submit it. And uh-huh. um, so it's, it's very good for me, I think, to be able to say, no, really, like you've got to loop back and, and take a second or a 27th look at it. And, um, <laughs> you know, getting feedback is a good thing and, and try not to resist it. You know, it's, it's good to have a second or third set of eyes to help you find your errors. Um, and so, yeah. And I generally, until a book is published, I tend not to get too attached. I actually, right now, this um, book that I'm writing, the manuscript's like 76,000 words or something right now. And then my, my like cut document where I have things that I removed, I think it's like 25,000 words right now or something. So I just, well, I mean, I've learned my lesson not to delete because sometimes (laughs) <laughs> and so you want to put it back in, but yeah, um, yeah. So I I do tend to revise really heavily, and I don't get too attached to early drafts. That's smart. I I, I need to learn how to do that because all all too often I'll go through and I'll just delete something and and never look back. And then yeah, you think later like oh d- I, boy. This feel like this needs something. Wasn't there something that used to be there? <laughs> yes. Oh, so this is actually kind of embarrassing, but my agent was like, you know, nothing ever happens with this artifact. Like, whatever happened to this thing? Like, how did he get it back? And I was like, well, you know, she mailed it to him. And she said, no, well, I don't think that's in there. And then I was like, oh, it's in the cut document. Like, it's still <laughs> I did write it. <laughs> I must have I must have taken it out and then forgotten to put it back in. Are, are you someone who keeps a lot of uh, the next ten ideas written on you know post its and napkins stuffed in a drawer somewhere, or do you, um, do you tra- tend to focus have, one at a time? I have a few ideas, um, maybe four or something, but mostly I try not to think about them too much while I'm yeah. writing a, a book. Are you the same way? I'm I'm the worst because I, I I get to a point where I'm like okay what am I gonna write next and I have all these shiny objects in front of me and yeah. and, and, and I'm like I can't and I'm like oh I I think there's something there and then oh but that's oh, that might be yeah. good and then what if I do something completely different and I, I I need to just I need to learn how to like pick one and then put everything else away so I can't see it yeah yeah oh it is it is hard right because starting always feels kind of exciting and fresh and yeah. <laughs> Especially if if you get you know twenty thousand words into something and it's yeah. and you feel like a little bit stuck, you're like, oh, but that other thing, right? That's going to go smoothly. Yes, right. Yeah, of course. And they never do. No. no. Joining me next is Ted Flanagan, debut author of Every Hidden Thing, about a paramedic who gets caught up in local politics with vengeful husbands, a very angry ex-cop, and the dark nightlife of Worcester, Massachusetts. Ted is himself a paramedic after being a newspaper man and a Marine, and we caught up on a Sunday when I accidentally interrupted the Patriots game to talk with them, which I know was a big deal for a Massachusetts boy. So I really appreciate him taking the time out to chat. I mean, I might as well have busted into his wedding day or Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, those, those Patriots fans are serious business. Congratulations, Ted, on Every Hidden Thing, your debut novel, I, I don't don't know why I'm holding it up because no one at home can see it, but it is it's something to be proud of, right? I mean, a, a book you can hold in your hand that that's got to be a good feeling, isn't it? It's sort of surreal. I've been all week. I've been pushing, you know, pinching myself to make sure it's actually all real. You know, I, I think my story is probably fairly common. I've been a reader since I can remember remembering, and always 
wandered the stacks of the library wondering what it might be like to see your your name on a spine so uh i'm there it's it's every bit as great as i kind of hoped it would be now did you know it was always going to be crime fiction from the beginning i think i found crime fiction by accident and mainly it's because those are my favorite novels they tend to be elmore leonard and james elroy has been my favorite for for years and years and uh to me, especially having you know being a paramedic and working a lot of urban urban ALS, the crime novel, to my way of thinking, is the great social novel. Mm. It's the last vestige of sort of art where it really meets the road. You know, it really meets real life. I, I mean, I love literary fiction as well, but at the end of the day, when I look for a fiction that reflects kind of life as I see it and as I experience it, you can't beat crime fiction. I don't think. Yeah. Oh, I I agree totally. Yeah. Well, you took the write what you know advice to heart here, and you write about the town where you're from in Worcester, Massachusetts, and you also give your main character, Thomas Archer, your same job as a paramedic. Did you try writing about anyone else first, you know, cops or lawyers maybe before you wrote about a paramedic? I tried so hard not to write about a paramedic, (laughs) (laughs) And and I tried so hard not to write about a newspaper reporter because that... The death of daily newspaper and daily journalism genuinely hurts my heart. Yeah. Uh, I have some hope now to see where digital journalism is going. But I loved working in a newsroom. It's hard to explain to people that never had the privilege of doing that how exciting it was to walk into this busy, loud place with crazy, super smart people. So, yeah, I, I really wanted to write about anything else. And... I'm um I'm not a, I'm a pantser you know by by inclination I sort of I think with my fingertips and so I just the more I wrote you know trying to figure out what the novel was going to be the more I kept coming back to these characters this world that I that I knew and that I understood you know I was in the Marine Corps and my next novel involves a famous incident from the Marine Corps in the 50s where a drill instructor drowned six of his recruits in an ill-advised march night march into the swamps called the Ribbon Creek incident it just so happens that that drill instructor eventually beat the charges and retired to a house. He spent the last 50 years of his life in a house that I drive by 20 times a day. It's right next to my own house. I'm always thinking about him. What was that like to live with that awful yeah. thing that happened? So I guess we really can't escape. Even when we try to, we really can't escape our own histories as fodder in some way. Well, a paramedic is one of those jobs that I see as being so intense that I imagine when you come off the job that you would want to write anything else. I mean, science fiction or romance even, I don't know, but but you're you're not bringing stories like right out of the job onto the page, right? You're just you're focused on the details and the emotions sort of giving us a, a ride along. Yeah, exactly. I try not to tell war stories like there I was where the pointy end of the needle goes here. No one cares. I don't care. And I put the pointy end of the needle there. I don't want to bore. It's like writing a good fight scene. It's it's a difficult tightrope to walk between describing the scene and not boring the heck out of people that, that <laughs> aren't really there for the fighting. Right. With paramedicine in the book, there's only one call. All the, all the calls in the book are real calls that I stole from other people that either stuck in my mind or amused me there's only one call in the whole book that i was actually on it's a call in the in a porn theater where the an unconscious drunk guy they wouldn't turn off the movie <laughs> or turn on the lights during and so you i actually had to go up and assess this naked unconscious guy in the aisle of a porn theater it was a it stuck with me that particular incident that's the only call in the whole book that i actually was on yeah that sounds like that would stick with you yes yeah yeah that was a unique a unique call <laughs> 
In every hidden thing, you put pressure on Archer from both sides. He's got this maniac ex-cop breathing down his neck, and then you bring in this militia man who blames Archer for the death of his wife to sort of put more pressure on. So now you're squeezing him from both sides. And to hear you say that you don't outline, I mean, I wonder at what point did you think you needed to add this extra layer into the story? I'm a definite believer in that maxim that you put your main character up a tree and throw rocks at him. Uh-huh. Uh, and I just figure the more rocks, the better. You know, when I look at Elmore Leonard, the way he applies pressures to characters, there's initial pressure and you think that's going to be the story. And then something tends to come later on in the book that provides an extra round of pressure. And a lot of times it's familial. It's it's the boozy cop has a difficult relationship with his third girlfriend. Like, And then that suddenly heats up. And by the end of the story, the main character has four or five things that are just applying um, enormous amounts of pressure and it's unsure how he's going to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, I knew I needed to put Archer under more pressure than just the bag man for the mayor chasing after yeah. him. And then I had this character, Jerry Knack, the the sort of deranged uh, militia member, and he was easy because he was real. Oh, wow. He was a real guy. I uh, When I was a reporter for a small or mid-sized daily newspaper right after I got out of the Marine Corps, this paper assigned me four aggressively quiet towns to cover. <laughs> I mean, when I say nothing is going on, I mean, that that is that's one of the main attractions of these towns. They're beautiful little towns, but there's nothing going on. <laughs> and so I was driving around by the state forest, desperate for a story. And I found this little house, the draggled ranch house on the borders of a state forest with a marquee sign on the, on, in the driveway. You know, fuck the IRS, don't pay taxes. And I don't know what was going on there, but you, had to, you have to knock on that door. <laughs> if you're a shoe leather reporter, you got to bang on that door and say, like, hey, what, what's going yeah. on here? It was like nine in the morning. We ended up behind his house. He pounded a case of bush lights and he spouted this anti-government rhetoric that by 2021 20, standards, totally tame yeah <laughs> but but this by this era this post oklahoma city era it was definitely inflammatory stuff I mean, it turns out there was no story other than you know sad guy with guns uh is mad at government yeah. which you know is, who wants to read that right so i never wrote anything about him there really is no story but i've never forgot him and so i when i was looking for the character i'm, I'm fascinated by this novel and in, indulges a bunch of my fascinations i'm fascinated by machine politics mm-hmm. I come from an Irish family that emigrated to the city of Worcester around the turn of the century. And, you know, the story of the Irish in the 20th century was that, you know, they ran the city. They ran lots of these sort of northeastern mill cities. And those machines are dying, but I'm, I'm fascinated by machine politics. And I'm a little unnerved by the militia movement and sort of fascinated by them. And they were making, sadly, a, a, a pretty yeah. strong comeback these days. At, at the end of the day, it's really all about, to me, the novel's all about the quest for power, but then the downstream effects of that quest and how your life can be upended unknowingly because you're 10 degrees of separation from some, some guy who wants to be the governor on his way yeah. to the president. Well, Ted, part of the trouble with interviewing a debut author is that there is, isn't a lot already written about you. So it makes my research hard. <laughs> so but it also made me wonder if that's not actually a benefit. I mean, people will approach this book and evaluate it solely on the story and the writing with none of the baggage of like, you know, the, the latest Stephen King novel where you, you know so much about the author. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you like to know about an author or do you like to come to a book cold and fresh? I like fine. I like discovering books. Mm-hmm. 
And then what I'll do is if I discover a book that really touches me, then I, yeah, then I'll devour everything by that author. Uh, you know, I just like William Gay. I discovered William Gay eight or nine years ago because I randomly picked up at a used bookstore, uh, Twilight. Mm-hmm. And then I read his note and Twilight blew me away. So then I go, I, I will look things up. I, I think there is, though, that, that act of discovery. Yeah. And then, then that writer sort of feels like yours. You know, so when I hear someone else talk about William Gay, I feel like they're talking about something my personal uh, <laughs> discovery, which is ridiculous, right? The guy's a master. <laughs> but, um, but that's kind of how I feel. Uh, Bonnie Joel Campbell, um, American Salvage, if you ever yeah, read yeah. that. I read that in um, in grad school, and it just now anything she writes, she could write a, a shampoo bottle <laughs> label, and I'm reading it. That's the greatest thing about literature is the act of discovery to me. I hope I have the problem. I'd love to have the problem someday where there's like some people love a Ted Flanagan book and some people don't, but lots of people want to read. I hope I have that problem someday, <laughs> but you know, you never know. You never yeah, know. right now um, you're someone's new discovery. That's it. That's it. See, I'm. I hope. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the whole Boston area has such a rich history of crime fiction. So many amazing authors from that area. Are you trying to add your name to the pantheon of great Boston crime writers? I fell in love with crime fiction by reading George Higgins, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, and all the Dennis Lehane novels. The Drink Before the War, uh, I read that uh, when I had been out of the Marine Corps like probably three weeks and uh, was thinking about finishing college and then this thing called an MFA program, which I understand that's, there's a lot of talk about baggage, but, <laughs> but I'm thinking like, well, I want to go to school for writing. I, have to learn, I spent the last, you know, six years learning how to take people apart. Now I just want to build some things of value long-term. And so I would be very proud and, and would love to, to follow in that tradition of, of Boston crime writers. The other guy that really affected me it may not be as well known, but a guy named Jack O'Connell, who wrote a bunch of great novels in the late 90s and early 2000s based in Worcester. He called it Quinsigamon, which is the name of the big lake. But other than other than Jack, really, no one has really written a lot yeah. about Worcester. It's a fascinating place that has deserved some attention from writers and, you know, hey, knock on wood, movie makers um, for some time. Well, there you go. You're, you're first in line to be Worcester's favorite son. It's, it's John Cena and then you. That's it. Well, that's it. That's it. Not, not that I'm lobbying for that, but hey, anybody, please reach out. I'm, my email's easy to find. <laughs> My final guest today is Raquel Reyes, author of Mango, Mambo, and Murder, which is the debut of her cozy mystery Caribbean Kitchen series. Raquel is a Cuban-American, and she brings that flavor and flair to the story set in Miami and featuring Miriam, a food anthropologist, which is where we started our talk to find out what the heck that is. You know, it seems like to stand out in the cozy world, you have to really have a fresh take on the genre. And I think Miriam certainly seems to fit the bill, if for no other reason than her job. A food anthropologist? What? What is this? Right. So a food anthropologist is a legit thing. It's for real. Okay. Um, it is a sub-discipline of anthropology. It's really studying the um, how and the why we eat something and making sure that you're, you know, putting the uh, the historical and the, the, the culture around it. You know, when I chose her profession, I really wanted her to be an academic because she's a Cuban-American and Latinas are underrepresented in academia. 
And so I thought it was really important that my character be uh, an academic. And so uh, in this series, when we start it, she has just gotten her PhD. And I say, the ink isn't even dry on it. Excellent. Well, you've got uh, some Miami flair in this, some Caribbean flair, some Cuban flair, all in this book. I mean, that sort of sums you up yourself, right? I do think so. Yeah. Um, You know, I love Miami and I want um, Miami to get some love from others. And um, so that's one of the reasons why. So the town in my story is a little town because, you know, Cozy's, that's kind of the, you know, the trope is that it's a little town. Right. Um, But that's very much what Miami is. Miami is this huge place with a bunch of smaller cities within it. So I kind of combined three little municipalities, three little towns and made this place called Coral Shores. But no, I wanted to put it in Miami because it's the it's the gateway to Latin America. It's the gateway to the Caribbean. And um, I was really lucky growing up in Miami. Um, My mom worked for the cruise line. And at that time, part of the benefit was you got a free cruise every year. So when I was a little kid, I went on so many cruises to so many places and cruising back then and is not the way it is now. Now you don't have to get off the boat <laughs> you right. know, because like everything is on the boat and there's like slides coming off of that. There was none of that stuff. This was just <laughs> kind of like you get on a boat, you get some good food and we're going to drop you off at an island. So um, I did spend a lot of time in the islands and um, I lived in Puerto Rico for a while and uh, we have good friends in the Bahamas. So I really love the Caribbean. And uh, I had not seen it represented in the subgenre that I love. And yeah. um, I mean, there's some really great, you know, Alex Segura does some great stuff uh, with his Pete Fernandez series. Miami's definitely represented there. And then there's this whole Miami noir kind of yep. thing. But on the cozy side, there really wasn't. On the amateur sleuth side, there really wasn't. So that's what I wanted to come in and bring. Nice. Well, you've got the requisite uh, recipes in the back of the book, which of course is a, is a thing that, that Cozy's love to do. But I want to know, what about what about a playlist? What music should we be listening to when we're reading this book? I personally am a big old school salsa fan. So uh-huh. Fania, all the way. But my character Miriam, she's a little bit more eclectic. I put in a couple of choices that I like, like the Fabulous Cadillacs. I put, uh, well... Maybe not in, in the first book. In book two, I mentioned the Fabulous Cadillacs. But um, yeah, you got to put some Bad Bunny in there. She's definitely listening to Bad Bunny. Okay. She would definitely also listen to Fania and Celia Cruz and all of the, the old school salsa because that's what we all grew up on. I mean, it was uh-huh. just out there in the atmosphere at all times. And you're probably a kid in the car with your parents playing it in the backseat going, you know, and, and dissing it. But then you grow up and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And, you know, you start dancing. <laughs> You've had many short stories published, but this is your first full-length novel. And here I am catching you on the day before the release. So how are the butterflies right now? <laughs> well, I have to say, um, I got really lucky and got a New York Times review. And It was a complete surprise to me. It was the most magical thing. And I think I'm really a little bit still on that high. Uh And beyond that, the mystery writing community is so supportive. You know, fellow writers are coming out there, you know, inviting me onto their blogs or, you know, they're sending me messages. You know, half of my emails are just, you know, these other writers going, oh, I saw you on such and such or, oh, hey, your book was listed here. And, And it's just wonderful. And I know that that won't necessarily last. 
um, beyond kind of like the buzz around your debut. But while I've got that buzz, I am loving it. (laughs) I've also been really, surprised isn't the word, but my book has some themes in it that I wondered if people were going to pick up on, Hmm. you know? And I've had some wonderful reviews and they have picked up on those subtleties. You know, those are like not storyline B, but storyline D, E, F, G, you know? <laughs> and I'm so glad that um, those little subtleties uh, got picked up on. That has been really validating. What I wanted to do and the story that I wanted to tell um, and the people that I wanted to represent, there's readers out there who are saying, yes, 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 yes. That's one thing I, I do feel like the cozy community has always been very open to inviting in, I think, that, you know, getting that take on, on a different type of community, a different culture, you know, a different cuisine, whatever that is. I think if you bring the, the kind of characters that anyone can relate to, because obviously they're dealing with these sort of bigger themes of, you know, solving a murder, trying to rectify their broken life, you know, whatever that is, finding a, a, a spouse, you know, all those sort of universal themes that we can all relate to. But then you give it like that extra flair that's, that's you know, something you haven't read before. That is something that I think readers really respond to, right? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think we have um, had in the last uh, two to three years, really openness in the cozy readership and also books that are being published. And I'm loving seeing it. I mean, Mia Manasala's book was so well received and can't wait for her second one. But there's also No Meme for Escape just came out by uh, Olivia Black. Super fun. That is also, it happens in a city, which I love to see. I love to see cozy set in a city or near a city because, you know, the reality is so many of us do live in cities. Right. You know, we're not off in an idyllic little town with, you know, the beautiful apple orchards and so forth, which is lovely. <laughs> and I and I would love to. But, you know, I also like to, I like a little bit of reality in my mm-hmm. cozy. And so I really appreciate these um, new kind of, I don't want to call them edgy because like at one point I think somebody was trying to like, that's like a subgenre, a sub, sub, sub genre. Edgy cozies. <laughs> like, it's not. I just yeah. think maybe we're putting a touch more of our lived reality in it. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been very active in the mystery community while awaiting publication of this book. You're, you're a member of MWA. You're, you're out there, you know, putting together conferences and, and things. I mean, Obviously, this speaks to the fact that writing a book like this or just writing a mystery in general has been a longtime goal of yours, right? Yes, I am a I am a 20-year overnight success. Absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tried to do the numbers the other day and then I stopped myself. I'm like, no, you just don't need to do the math. It's okay. But uh, I've been out there doing it and doing a lot of the, uh, the volunteering. I'm a co-chair for SleuthFest. I've been on the um, Florida chapter MWA's um, board. And uh, right now I'm on the steering committee for Guppies, Sister in Crime's internet group. And Mm. I find a lot of value from that. You know, I didn't go off and get an MFA. I kind of got the uh, do-it-yourself MFA by going to writing conferences and going to monthly meetings and all of that stuff. And, And then you build this network and you build this support group. And I know it's what's gotten me to where I am right now. And so if I had something to tell to writers who are just starting out is you have to have goals, but 
do not get out that uh, tape and make uh, you know the the goal that you're going to run through because that line is going to constantly be moving. There's so much involved with getting a agent and getting a book deal and the patients needed to wait for that book to get published. All of that stuff, you're learning the skill as you go along. So yeah. I think that you know my road to this moment right now has certainly taught me patience, has certainly taught me appreciation. And I would highly encourage anyone who's just starting out, get involved. It is a network, you know, and that kind of feels really buzzwordy, but it's a support system, you know, because you will learn from other people's mistakes, you know, or their heartbreak story, or, you know, they wasted two years on an agent that they didn't have a good match with because, you know, right. finding your agent is also like a whole relationship dance, yeah. <laughs> you know, get involved in a writer group and just sit yourself in the chair, do the writing and build your patience. <laughs> yes. Well, there you build go. Build your patience. That's what I need to work on. <laughs> Well, excellent. That, that's great advice. And uh, I know by the time uh, people are hearing this, the, the book will be out. But uh, I wish you all the best tomorrow. Take the time. Enjoy it. Have a good uh, a good party. Uh, do, do your best to, to celebrate the moment and because your debut only comes around once. And I'm super lucky. I'm having an in-person launch. So I'm oh, very good. excited. I'm at my local independent bookseller, Books and Books, down here in Miami. And so... Yes, I'm very happy to actually going to have seats looking out there. I'm not going to be looking at a screen. I'm going to be looking at actual <laughs> humans in a room with me. It's going to be fabulous. Okay, I want to thank all the authors who spoke with me today. This was a really great eclectic group and featured some really good books that you should check out. I'll be back soon with another great show and a big announcement next time. So tune into the next episode, check that out. And as always, thanks for listening.